This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Luke chapter 8. It's good to have Brian and Rosie and family this morning again with us uh, over from England this Easter time. And Rosie's mum's in the hospital too. Uh, she's been going through a lot of difficulties as well. Luke chapter 8. And at this point, just reading uh, the first three verses only. Now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others, who provided for him from their substance. I know that uh, this is Palm Sunday and we're facing Good Friday and Easter Sunday uh, at the end of next week. And uh, so this morning I I want to, the title of the message is Easter Through a Woman's Eyes, a particular woman, Mary Magdalene. Easter through a woman's eyes. Mary Magdalene was, in many respects, a a very remarkable woman. She was an outstanding friend and devoted disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ. But for 2,000 years now, she has suffered the indignity of having her reputation sullied, shamed by the assumptions and the ignorant, incorrect insinuations of preachers. Preachers doesn't always get it right. Can you say amen? <laughs> you, can't, you can't say amen. We try our best, but we don't always get it right. And unfortunately, over the centuries, this woman has been branded a prostitute a woman of ill repute. Now, there is no scriptural reference for that whatsoever. But nevertheless, it has persisted. And maybe one of the reasons is, had we read towards the end of chapter 7 of Luke, uh, it told the story there of how that woman of ill repute, genuine woman of ill repute, came into the house of Simon the Pharisee where Jesus was. You remember how she wept profusely and and wet Jesus' feet with her tears and then dried them with her hair and poured out that beautiful ointment on his feet that filled the whole room where they were sitting. And so because then it immediately falls in to mentioning Mary uh, of Magdala, then people assumed that's who this was talking about. Also, some people have got the idea, uh, I've read it in commentaries, they've got the idea that the woman who was taken in adultery, remember the one who was dragged before Jesus and thrown at his feet, and he, remember he wrote on the ground, and he says, that him is without the first sin cast the first stone. But none of that, absolutely none of it, is any scriptural basis whatsoever. It's just assumption. 
And then, of course, uh, in the days that we live, particularly coming up to Easter, there's all these false stories about Jesus and the resurrection and Calvary and Judas and Mary Magdalene. And Dan Brown, who wrote The Da Vinci Code, was one of the proponents of this uh, who made out blasphemously that Jesus had an affair with Mary Magdalene and eventually they got married and had kids, which is just awful. But that's oftentimes that's the prevalent view in the world. But sadly, the church has sullied this woman's reputation. Now, what it does tell us very clearly and plainly is that she had seven demons. What they were, how she got them, the Bible doesn't tell us. It draws a veil over that. But she definitely had that because Jesus cast them out. And we do know that anyone with seven demons, their life is going to be blighted. And, and she's going to know that she has these dark forces. May not be able to explain what it is, but she had them, and she must have been absolutely tormented with them. And, uh, uh, and whatever, whatever they did to her blighted her life for years and years and years. And so there are scriptures, for instance, that tells us that uh, these demonic spirits has an effect on whoever they possess. Uh, for example, uh, some threw themselves in the fire, Matthew 17, 15. Luke 4, 35, writhed on the ground, convulsed, Matthew 17, cried out, Mark 5, 5, foamed at the mouth, Luke 9, 39, showed supernatural strength, Luke 8, 29, went about naked, Luke 8, 27, lived in cemeteries, Luke 8, 27. Some are blind, Matthew 12. Some are dumb, Matthew 12. They're not all blind and dumb people. Or anybody who lives in a cemetery has necessarily got a demon. But in those cases, it clearly says they had. And so something of the nature of those evil spirits must have manifested in her life in whatever shape, form, or fashion. But none of that says anywhere that she became a prostitute or that even she's a woman of ill repute, or even she was a sinful woman. It just said that she had seven demons, and Jesus cast them out. Whatever ill effects these dark forces had in her life, she still managed, and probably with some difficulty, to become a woman of substance. Now, maybe, perhaps, she might have been a businesswoman. The Bible doesn't tell us. But whatever her trade was, that she had accumulated uh, quite a tidy sum of money. And in spite of all that she had internally going through emotionally, blighted with these dark forces, she still managed to be able to accumulate uh, quite a lot of substance. And it's interesting that except one instance, every time she's mentioned among other women, her name always comes first except one time. So that would lead us to believe that among her peers uh, that she was, had some kind of status even among her peers. However, having accomplished so much in her life, she was still tormented by evil forces. But then one day her life was to change forever because one day she met the Master. She had an encounter with Jesus where this happened, when it happened, 
again we do not know. But there was a moment when Jesus looked into her eyes. There was a moment when he looked even into her very soul. And he rebuked those forces. And they left her instantly. And immediately the peace of God came into her heart and into her mind. And she was filled with joy unspeakable and full of glory. What a release. What a deliverance. What a feeling she must have felt for the first time in years and maybe in her whole life. Suddenly she was free as a bird in her mind and in her soul. What a tremendous deliverance. Never in all of her life had she ever felt such inner strength and assurance and peace and joy as at that moment when Jesus transformed her life. She would never, ever be the same again. And whatever business she may or may not have had, Whatever it was, it looks like she gave that up and became a devoted disciple of Jesus. And her, with many other women, ministered unto Jesus out of their substance, out of the money that they had, because this band that Jesus had around them was growing. And they needed food, and they needed fed, and they needed housed. And so her and others, women of substance, was able to help to alleviate the needs that were there. Of all of the lives that Jesus touched, I don't think, apart from his own mother, I don't think there was anybody more devoted and loved Jesus more than Mary Magdalene. There was something deep and precious and authentic and real about her love to the master. She would love to sit with others around the feet of Jesus and call him rabbi, teacher, master. And she would become one of the most devoted female disciples of all time. Might I add that Jesus, by the way, broke the mold as a rabbi. To have women as disciples was highly unusual. It must have raised many eyebrows. It must have been a big talking point. And there was a number of women who followed him around, who sat at his feet. Now we know that there was the 12 apostles but above and beyond that, there was a lot of women. Many other women ministered of their substance. And many of them became devoted disciples. And so Jesus broke the mold in that respect. Now, in Mark chapter 12, if I, sorry, Matthew chapter 12, beg your pardon. You'll remember this incident in verse 46, while he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brother stood outside seeking to speak with him. But then one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Note this. And he stretched out his hand towards his disciples 
And he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, Kenneth E. Bailey, uh, an author who, who wrote a wonderful book, among many, called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. And it's a book that looks at behind the scenes of the culture of Jesus' day. And he said, in our Middle Eastern cultural context, a speaker who gestures towards a crowd of men can say, here are my brother and uncle and cousin. But he cannot say, here are my brother and sister and mother. The text specifically affirms that Jesus gestured towards his disciples whom he addresses with male and female terms, letting us know that it wasn't just men were his disciples, but there was a bunch of women who were just as devoted as they were, who followed him around, who sat at his feet, and they were taught of the Lord. And so Jesus, as a rabbi, was very different. So I say again, I've said this before, that no religious leader in history ever elevated woman as much as Jesus of Nazareth. None before or none since. So let not any modernist, feminist movement or person say that Christianity degrades woman. It doesn't. Jesus elevated woman. At every juncture, he lifted them up, and he did the same with children. And that lets us know what God really thinks about you ladies who love Christ. He loves you, and he elevates you, and he lifts you up. Can I point out that Mary's surname is not Magdalene? It merely denotes that she came from Magdala, which is an area south of Capernaum on the western shores of the Sea of Galilee, an area that Jesus himself would be very familiar with. And let me also say that it is pronounced Magdalene, not Magdalene, as is commonly said, but Magdalene, referring to where she came from. And so I want to point out just a couple of scenes this morning of Mary's life, and that will show us the, the deep devotion that she had for the Master, but also particularly this morning, because it's coming up to Easter, is to think of terms of the cross and the resurrection through the eyes of a woman, a particular woman, Mary of Magdala. In John chapter uh, 19, John chapter 19, verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. He said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. 
there they stood by the cross of Jesus, Mary Magdalene. Never far from the Master. From that moment when Jesus set her free, she was fully determined that she would not let him out of her sight. And right at the very cross, when all the other Christ's disciples had fled for their lives in fear with the exception of John. Here she is, Mary Magdalene, this lovely, remarkable woman stayed with Jesus to the bitter end. When even the great bragging, boasting Peter failed miserably and ran like all the rest of them. But not this woman. Jesus had done so much for her, she could not leave him now. She had this distinction that she was last at the cross. It's interesting, and we don't have time to look at all these references. You can do it in your spare time. But Matthew 27, Mark 15, uh, it says that many women from Galilee came to the cross and looked at him from afar off, including Mary Magdalene. But she could not and would not continue to look from afar off. At some point, she came from afar off and came and stood with his mother and with John and Mary, wife of Clophas, right at the foot of the cross. By the way, looking at him from afar off was no disrespect. You can understand why. There would be a great crowd. There would be a rabble. There would be the execution squad. There would be soldiers, rough, uncouth, crude soldiers. There would be the ghoulish onlookers that had come to the feast of Passover from all over the Roman Empire, the, the Jews and the proselytes. And perhaps some of them had never seen a Roman crucifixion. And out of sheer curiosity and some kind of ghoulish idea wanted to see this. It must have been an awful scene. Jesus hanging naked on a cross and people jeering and mocking. And there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, wife of Clophas, and Mary Magdalene. I have no doubt that she followed him all the way from the, up the Via Dolorosa, uh, up to the hell of the skull just outside Jerusalem. And she would hear the, the cries and the, the mocking and the jeers and the foul language, and those priests saying, if you're the Christ, come down from the cross. And the slights even of the two thieves on the cross. And, and the gaping crowd standing, and all the, the noise that was going on. It must have been an awful scene for her. And her heart would be breaking. And her eyes would be stinging with salt tears. perhaps saw his hands being pierced, his feet being nailed to the cross, and 
the soldier sticking that spear in his side. And now the master is dead. It's obvious he's dead. And his blood-spattered, broken body is being taken down from the cross. The Passover Sabbath was approaching fast. And those religious Jews would not want to desecrate the Passover with these bodies on the cross. So the order was given to break their legs, hasten their death. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. That's why they stuck the spear in his side, as you know. And so his body is being removed. But what's this? Who are these two men? Prominent men taking the body of Jesus. Why would they do that? Who are they? And somebody in the crowd maybe said, that's Joseph of Arimathea. He's a prominent leader of the Jews. He's in the Sanhedrin. And that's Nicodemus. He's also a leader of the Jews. These are prominent people in Jewry. But why would they take his body? This must have been going through her mind. What have they got to do with this? They're in the Sanhedrin. They would be the ones that eventually get Jesus put to death. Why would they be taking his body? In Mark chapter 15... Verse 42, now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Hmm. And it says on taking courage, it really means that. Not only was he taking a stand against the whole Sanhedrin that had been his whole life, his whole career, but he's actually going to Pilate to ask for the body of this traitor. He was risking his own life. But at last, he was no longer prepared to be a secret disciple, a secret admirer. He was going to come out now boldly, even if it cost him his life. He went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled that he was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he, brought fine, then he bought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen. And he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of a rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb now note this, and Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. So that implies that they followed these two men. They wanted to know what is going on. This is highly unusual. Who would want the body of Jesus? Certainly none of his disciples wanted his body, they had run. There was only her and John and a few women, but that was it. 
And then in Luke chapter 23, Verse 50, And behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and a just man. He had not consented to their decision indeed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock, where no one had ever lain before. Uh, I like what old C.H. Spurgeon says. He says, Jesus was born in a virgin womb and he was buried in a virgin tomb. And that day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew near. And the woman who had come with him from Galilee followed after. And they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Now in John 19... I know we're kind of bouncing about a little bit here, but just to try to get a fuller picture. John 19, verse 38. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus, and Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight, that is. And they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus, because the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. And so these women anxious to know what was happening to the master's body, followed every inch of the way, and they saw where he was buried. But Mary of Magdala would not let the matter rest. She was determined to pay one final last respect to Jesus the Master. She was going to offer one more service of devotion to Christ. Come with me, please, to Mark chapter 16. Just a few more verses. Now, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But then they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. 
And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Who wouldn't have been afraid? What a shock. Last thing in the world they ever imagined would have happened. Now, when he arose early on the first day of the week, note this, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. First person on earth to see the resurrected Savior. What a privilege. What an honor. Last at the cross, first at the tomb. And she went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive, that he had been seen by her, they did not believe. In John chapter 20, just following on here, Now, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark, saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, which was John, and said to them, they have, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Who's the they she's referring to? Well, she's not sure. All she, all she knows is that Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, these prominent Jewish Sanhedrin men, that they took him away, but he's, he's gone now. His body's gone. So did they come and remove his body and further prepare it for burial, finally, because it was done in a rush because of the Sabbath coming on? Or was it the authorities? Did the authorities come? Because remember, they don't know what's going on between the Sanhedrin and the Pilate at this time, you know, where they asked for the seal to be. They didn't know anything about that. So was this the authorities doing this? Was he going to be taken away and buried in a criminal's grave? Was he going to be throw, thrown at Gehenna, the town dump that was burning with fire? Is that what's going to happen? She doesn't know. They, whoever they is, somebody, they took his body away. We do not know where they have laid him. So Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, just like Peter would do. And he saw the linen cloth lying there and the handkerchief which had been around his head not lying with the linen cloth but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first and went in also and he saw and believed. You should underline that in your Bible. He saw and believed. What did he see? He didn't see Christ didn't see an angel. All he saw was the grave clothes. So what was so startling about those grave clothes that absolutely convinced John that Jesus had risen from the dead? Because when you read the next scripture, it says, they did not know the scripture that he must rise from the dead. They did not know that scripture. 
So what convinced John? Those grave clothes. The way those grave clothes lay convinced John absolutely. So that tells us that they weren't unwrapped. Remember, whenever Joseph Arimathea and Nicodemus put those linen cloths on, they put a strip of linen cloths, then those marinalos, then another strip, then more marinalos, and it would be a cocoon shape. And if it lay long enough, it would harden. So Jesus must have just vacated that and left it as it was. Not unwrapped, but just as it was. And the only thing is the napkin, the handkerchief that had been over the face was taken and folded aside. So when he saw that, he was absolutely convinced Jesus had risen from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But note this. Remember Mary had gone to tell the two of them and then they ran to the tomb? Well, Mary probably didn't run after them. She probably walked. By the time she got to the tomb, they had already gone to their own homes again. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head, the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Now, just as a little aside here, one thoughtful writer makes this comment, and I think it's brilliant. Do you remember the Old Testament? Do you remember the ark? That wooden box overlaid with gold with the two carved golden cherubim, the two carved golden angels on top of the lid with their wings pointing that way to each other, looking down upon the lid, which was called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was the place where the atoning blood of the sacrifice in the tabernacle, later on the temple, where the high priest would take that in once a year into where the ark was, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So the two angels are looking at the mercy seat. Now in John's first epistle in chapter 2 and chapter 4, John says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. It literally means he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And he had to shed his blood to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so imagine these two angels, one where his feet was, one where his head had been. There they are, just like these two carved golden cherubim. And Christ, who had been there, is now risen as our propitiation for our sins literally as our mercy seat. And he is our mercy seat. And so she sees these two in white. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Note that they have taken away my Lord. Not our Lord, my Lord. 
At that point, she wasn't remotely interested in the rest of them. She had already told them. She didn't know where they are. They're gone. It's my Lord. That was her concern. They have taken away my Lord. See how personal she made this relationship with Christ. My Lord. And I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? You might ask, well, why did she not know it was Jesus? Well, remember, this is very early morning, still dark. Remember also that she had been crying profusely. She is an emotional rack. She's shattered. She's broken. She's devastated. She's grieving. So maybe that's why she didn't realize who it was. Or maybe, maybe momentarily, God withheld that from her eyes. Remember the two in the road to Emmaus, how that Jesus walked along with them and they didn't recognize who he was until he broke bread. And then suddenly they realized, because God was withholding that from them, it says. Though for every reason, she didn't recognize who he was. Jesus says, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she's supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, please tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Somebody said that her love was greater than her logic. Her heart overruled her head. How could she, on her own, carry a full-grown adult man with a hundred pounds of marin aloes wrapped around him? There was no logic to that. Sure there wasn't. But her devotion and her love made up for that. All she thought was, if you just tell me where he is, I'll take him away. Never thought for one second, how am I going to do this? You see, sometimes God may come to us and ask us to do something. There's not much logic to it. Maybe no logic to it. But what our devotion and our love for the master causes to do it. That's exactly what this woman was. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And in that moment, instantly she recognized his voice. She had heard her name being spoken by him so many times. Nobody ever spoke her name like Jesus. Whether it was the inflection of his voice or whatever, I don't know, but there was something the way he said her name. And instantly when he says, Mary, she turned and said, Rabboni. Now in, just underneath this in my New King James Version, in brackets, it says, which is to say teacher? 
But that's not a good translation. Albert Barnes, uh, whose notes on the New Testament is a classic for Bible students, by the way. Uh, he said, this is a Hebrew word, Rabboni, is a Hebrew word denoting literally my great master. It's one of the titles given to Jewish leaders. This title was given under three forms, Rab, R-A-B, which means master, which is the lowest degree of honor, or Rabbi, my master, which is a title of a higher dignity. But Rabboni, my great master, was the most honorable of all. And it was only given to seven of the most famous, well-known rabbis. people of great eminence and importance. And that's exactly... In fact, that word's only ever used twice in the new, whole of the New Testament. And out of her heart, out of her devotion, out of her love, out of that desire to worship and honor him, comes this word from the depths of her being. Rabboni, my great master! <laughs> what a moment that must have been. What a moment that must have been for Mary. And suddenly, all of her tears, all of her pain, all of her grief, all of her hurt, all of her disappointment, all of it was gone in an instant because the master was right there. And she did what anybody else would have done. We have had to be honest, we'd have done the same thing. She fell at his feet to grab his feet to cling to him. Didn't want to let him go again. But in John 20, 17, Jesus said, do not cling to me. It's more than just don't touch me. Don't cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. And Mary came and told the disciples that he had spoken these things to her. And there's various views on why he said, don't cling to me, I've got to go to the Father, and so forth. But perhaps, perhaps, if you boil it all down, maybe what he was saying to her is what he wanted her and all the disciples and us to know today that from henceforth she would not know him after the flesh. Those three and a half years where they could speak to him and touch him and, and commune with him would be gone physically, materially. He would be gone out of their sight. Yes, for 40 days he appeared several times to them and to many others, but then the day he rose in ascension, the Mount of Olives, and from that moment on, right to now, we walk by faith, not by sight. Blessed are those who have not seen yet believe. That's you and that's me. So I'd love to have been seen Jesus in the flesh. Yes, we all would love that, but Jesus says you're far blessed that you haven't seen that. That your faith allows you to believe in me whom you've never seen. That pleases the great heart of God even more. So don't cling to me. You will not know me after the flesh. In less than six weeks, I'll be gone. 
He wasn't rebuking her, but he was letting her know, no, Mary, it's going to be different from now on. I won't always be here, but I'm going to send my Holy Spirit who will be here to be in you. I told you that Jesus was a different rabbi. And the fact that he told, listen to me, we're almost close. The fact that he told Mary, go tell my disciples. She was the first one commissioned by Jesus to spread the good news of his resurrection. The first one in history to be given that privilege. Ladies, it was a woman who got that privilege. <laughs> it was a woman. Why was that such a privilege? Because in Jesus' day in the first century, women were not allowed to testify even in a court of law. They were treated as if their word was not reliable. What did it tell you about Jesus elevating a woman? And Jesus caused this woman, out of whom he had cast seven devils, said, well, what if she had been a prostitute? Well, what if she had been? She was cleansed. She was clear. He had still done the same thing. And he commissioned her to go and spread the word. Ladies, you are commissioned to spread the word, the good news the gospel of Jesus to go tell <laughs> to go tell so what have we learned even though she was tormented and demented she found complete freedom in Jesus and anybody that's demented and tormented for whatever reason may not the evil spirits can be free in Jesus. And even though she had been a woman of wealth, she became a woman of worth. <laughs> and what a woman she was. Her devotion, her loyalty would put many men to shame. And probably did shame many men. Particularly his disciples who all forsook him and fled. She was the one who had to go and tell. If it wasn't for women in the church, I don't know where the church would be today. I really don't. If it wasn't for women, I don't know where missions would be today. Even in this small church of ours, it's three women who are out there doing missions. Otherwise, we wouldn't have anybody doing missions. So ladies, take note. God delights in using you. Go tell. Minister. Bless. because the church would not be the same without you. The kingdom of God would not be the same without woman. Thank God for woman. Amen? Amen. And all the men said,
Well, that's the worst amen I heard. <laughs> that's pathetic. That. <coughs> Shocking. <laughs> Those who honor Christ will themselves be honored by Christ. There's no question that this woman honored Jesus to the nth degree, went beyond anybody else. And Jesus honored her, gave her a high distinction. First one to see the resurrected Christ. First one that the resurrected Christ spoke to. First one that spoke to the resurrected Christ. First one to be commissioned to go tell. Do you see that Jesus didn't give that honor to any of his disciples? Not one of them, not even his own mother. <coughs> but to this precious, lovely woman, Mary Magdalene. What a lady. What a handmaiden. What a servant. So be encouraged, woman. God loves you. He's got special qualities in you that he uses. <coughs> You're the backbone of every church in the country. Thank God for you. And all the men this time said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.